0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All good morning and welcome this morning. Uh, Pentecost Sunday. I do not uh, have a Pentecost message. Um, I need to finish up the book of Job this morning. And uh, I just couldn't figure out quite how to work the Holy Spirit into this. It's clear Job needed the Holy Spirit. Um, um, But we do celebrate the Holy Spirit who will enlighten us this morning. So I want to begin this morning by reading um, from Job chapter 42, uh, verses 1 through uh, 9, I believe. Yeah, 1 through 9. So let's begin reading Job 42, 1-9. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear... But now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For, what you, have, uh, for, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nahamathite went and did as the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Uh, we're actually going to back up and begin uh, uh, in, in chapter 40, verse 15. Um, but as we, as we come to the end of the book of Job, um, we come to understand, hopefully <laughs> you've got the point, that this book is not about helping comfort and, and help in the midst of suffering. <laughs> Unfortunately, and I know that's a huge disappointment for a lot of people uh, who hope that the book will explain something about why people suffer. And we get to the end of the book, and it's very clear that that is not what the book is about. Uh, and it, and I tried to warn from the beginning that that we wouldn't answer those questions, and the book doesn't really wrestle very much with the problem of suffering. Job suffers, but that's really not the main. Point of the book, right? And and uh, if you have friends who are suffering or struggling, if you're suffering, don't say, "Hey, go to the Book of Job; it will help you." (laughs) It will not. It just will not. Right? Uh, There's other better passages, maybe in the Psalms, uh, not in the Book of Job. But we, we we discover what I hope is you. if you've been with us through this whole journey, what I hope you've come to the conclusion and understanding is that this book is helping us think about our motives for why we do good, right? That's really what's at the heart of this book. What is our motive in doing good things or trying to be a good person or trying to do what's right, right? And it takes a a deep look at this, uh, what we would call the merit, the merits of the merit system, right? Right? does God operate the world based on some kind of merit system or on the basis of a karma? Does this make good sense, right, for the world to work this way where we do good to get good, right? And and the way the world operates is by people getting what they deserve based on their conduct and behavior. And we see that in the book, this does not explain how God works. This is not how God has set up the world. And the God of the Bible does not operate on some kind of merit system. Um, so so hopefully we are trying to be a good person I hope that's a goal for you <laughs> um, but, but the book helps us think through our motives in that why are we trying to do good why are we trying to be a good person uh, are we just trying to get what we want are we trying to shield our life from trouble are we doing good as some kind of insurance policy so that God will uh, you know, work things out for us or is there more to it But we also see that the book, and really more importantly, the book examines why God does good. And that's probably a more important question, right? Uh, Does God, is God good? Does God do good things? Does God do what is right? And if so, what is his motives? Why does God do what's right? Why does God do what is good? Um, We see in this book that sometimes uh, some, some bad people are blessed with good things. And sometimes really good people suffer like Job, right? And so we want to know, what is God's motive? What's behind the reason why God uh, doesn't deal with evil? Why why does he allow sometimes people like Job to suffer? Uh, And The the, the book doesn't answer that question either, but it does get behind the scenes and it does examine God's motive, God's purpose in, in what he does, how he works. Now, both of these questions are extremely important because the way we answer that question really sets the framework for how we relate to God. What kind of a relationship we have with God. And that's why this is so important because um, it determines the nature of our ongoing connection or relationship with God. Um, So I have a couple roles here in Chiang Mai. One, I'm obviously the pastor of CCF. And uh, so I have that role. But I also have this role as the executive director of the Family Connection Foundation. And uh, in that role, I, I function kind of as a boss, right? I'm the executive director. I'm in charge of stuff. I'm supposed to be, um, an, I'm an employee of about 80 Thai staff and a bunch of foreign volunteers, right? And um, so when new people show up, They, I get introduced, this is the executive director of the Family Connection Foundation, and people, especially if they're Thai, you know, they kind of, kind of lower themselves, like, like, and, 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 and what I find is it takes sometimes months, maybe even years to break through this barrier of fear, that they're just worried I'm gonna fire them, I'm gonna come down on them, I'm gonna yell at them, right? Which if they know me at all, no, that's nothing of (laughs) what I'm like, right? And and I, I find it really frustrating because I don't want to relate to people as a boss, right? And I don't want to tell people what to do. I don't want to. I don't want to follow the rules. I don't even want to have rules. And they keep telling me, "No, you need to have policies." I'm like, I don't. I don't believe in policies. Actually, uh, no, that's not completely true. Uh, I'm sure they're important, but I don't want to be the person who has to enforce them, right? I just want to be people's friend, right? So that's why I really like my role as pastor much better. Because as pastor, you're not anybody's boss, right? I'm not telling you what to do. Nobody expects me to tell them what to do. I'll pray for you. And if you need advice and counsel, I'll direct you to God who will give you wisdom. But that's kind of the extent of it. I just want to be a friend, right? Well, the nature of that relationship kind of depends on these expectations, right? On on how we think about our relationship to somebody, and, and how do we think about our relationship with God, right? Is he a boss or is he a friend, right? Uh, how do we relate with him? Well, the way we answer these questions really describes or will, will squeeze us into the kind of relationship that we have with God. And I, I would say that a lot of us probably don't have the healthiest kind of relationship with God. And I think oftentimes we find ourselves having a relationship that is not... The relationship that God really wants, right? It's just how we see him, right? So, um, of course, the background of the book is that uh, the the God of the Bible is not like the ancient gods, right? The ancient gods of, of, of this, of Job's era, Job's time, didn't know what they wanted, but they knew that they needed people to help them, right? They depended on human beings to give them what they wanted. So it was up to human beings to kind of guess what the gods wanted. And if they got it right, the gods would respond by showing them favor, by blessing them, right? Uh, And so this is where this idea of merit system or karma, of getting what you deserve, kind of came out of. And it's still survived into the world today. And I think most religions uh, in the world have this idea of God, a God who has to be appeased, who has to be satisfied. And if you get it right, he'll be nice to you. If you get it wrong, he won't. Um, so, so we know that's not what the God of the Bible is like, and that's not the kind of relationships He wants. So as we wrap up the book of Job, what, what does, how does God want to relate to us? That's the big question. Um, so first of all, let's let's talk a little bit more about why we do, why we do good. Why do we do good? Because that really is the, the, a big point in the book, and I think it's important to just touch on this one more time real briefly. Do we do good as a means to an end? And of course, that's how Job's friends understood God and understood their own goodness and how they were convinced it would work with Job, right? It's like doing good is just a means to an end. Um, That if you do good, you'll get good. And Job, you're not getting good. Therefore, you've done something wrong. You're a bad person. And of course, uh, we know from the beginning of the book that that's not true, that Job uh, was a righteous man and his suffering was not the result of anything he had done. Um, but that was the mindset of Job's friends. And so Job really illustrates, and to his credit, he goes through all this suffering and it becomes very clear that, that Job's motive in doing good is not to get benefits or rewards. Right? He's not just doing the right thing so that God will make him prosperous or safe. When all of his prosperity and safety are stripped away, Job's still committed to doing the right thing. He's committed to righteousness for its own, own sake. And, and, and unlike his friends who thought righteousness was a matter of figuring out the whims of the gods, uh, Job understands that, that righteousness is right. It's good because it's just good, right? It's right to help the poor, It's right to take care of orphans and widows. In short, Job's code of conduct was really following the golden rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And that's the way Job treated people. Not so they would like him or so God would like him or so life would be better for him. But because he believed it was right. It was good. It was the thing that he should do. And so Job clearly understood the importance of doing good for its own sake. Because it's right. It's right. It is just right to be good. It is right to show kindness. It is right to care for those in need and to do to others what you would want them to do to you. Uh, so uh, so why do you do good? Now, of course, all of us, our first instinct would be to say, well, of course, because it's good to do good, right? We're like Job, right? Raise of hands. No. I'll put you on the spot. I would like to think that's true of me. Uh... That I I just believe in goodness for its own sake, and that I don't have any kind of hidden agenda. I'm not trying to earn God's favor or make Him happy so that He will somehow protect me and make my life go well. Uh, but if I'm really honest, uh, I have to admit that it's not that simple, right? The truth is, in very subtle ways, this uh, this this idea of of doing good things to get god to bless us easily creeps into our thinking and and i know when i when i first so this is when i was a young christian when i first came to christ and i was first learning about christianity and uh i learned that you're supposed to pray and read your bible you're supposed to have a quiet time which means you get up early in the morning or for me i couldn't get up early in the morning so i'd stay up late at night (laughs) i got up early like before i went to bed actually and uh And I would pray and read my Bible, right? And um, so I prayed and I read my Bible. I had this magic quiet time. And lo and behold, I would have a really good day. And I would think, wow, this works. This is the coolest thing ever. I pray and I read my Bible. I do it God wants. And God makes life go really good for me. Like, i got to do this more because this is good stuff, right? So I'd read my Bible and I'd pray again and I'd have another really good day, right? This would last for some two or three days. And then I would pray, and I'd read my Bible just like before, and I would have a terrible day. I was like, what? What went wrong? Like, this isn't working. And I'd pray and say, God, what did I do long? Did I I read the wrong Bible verse? Did I I not pray long enough? Like, why didn't it work? Well, what was I doing? Well, I had this total misunderstanding, right, of, of what it was about. I was doing this so that God would give me a good day. So God would bless me. So God would protect me. So God would make things go well. Um, But actually, as I found out later, that's not why I'm supposed to read the Bible and pray, actually. I'm supposed to actually do it to actually have some kind of relationship with God. Who knew? Right? To fellowship with Him. Right? And so... Uh, this thinking, right, I was wrong because I had kind of reduced God to a vending machine, right? God was just a big cosmic vending machine. If I put in the right amount of coins and I push the right button, God will give me what I want, right? And of course, it's all very subtle. And God had to show me the hard way that that's that's not the kind of relationship he wants with us. He doesn't want to be a cosmic vending machine. Um, And... And I wish I could say that I learned that lesson and i 've moved on, but i 'll be honest, oftentimes I find myself still trying to make sure I get it right so that God will give me what I want right uh, one of one of the funniest ones for me is' the, is the whole notion of preaching. I find preaching very stressful because I want to say good things, I want to say the right things I want it to be successful, like, if there's anything I don't want to fail at, it's preaching, (laughs) partly because it's my main job, Uh, but also just because there's so much, I feel like there's a lot at stake in preaching, it's getting it right, right, and, um, you know, I find myself sometimes, did I pray enough, right, did I get prayed up enough, maybe I should fast, maybe I should fast more, right, so that I can make sure I get it right, right. Isn't that, isn't that falling to the same thing of making God a fending machine, right? Is God going to make preaching work because I get it all right, right? See, that can easily creep into our life in so many ways. And I find that it's very difficult sometimes to evaluate my motives. Right? It's really hard to get to the root of why I really do good, why I really serve God, why I really sold everything I own and moved to Thailand to be a missionary. Right? Um, it would seem that I did that. I want to tell myself I did it for noble reasons, but uh, it's sometimes hard to get to the root of our motives. Uh, but I do find this, that uh, suffering is a great way to test our motives, right? When things do not go well, when it doesn't work out the way we thought it, it should or the way, what we expected, what is our attitude, Right? And here's the thing, I find that when I start getting angry at God, God, I sacrificed for you. I, I gave up my time for you. I gave up money. I moved all the way across the world for you. And, and it's not working out. Right? You are not keeping your end of the deal. Right? And I can I I mean I've said those things. Right? You're not doing your your part. I did my part. You're not coming through with your part. Well, when we start using those kind of words, what we're saying is, God, I served you so that you would bless me. And if you don't bless me, I've wasted my effort. Right? I've wasted my time. Why was I trying to be good? Well, uh, God has a way of revealing our heart and our, our, and our attitudes. And, and if we're getting angry because we're not getting what we deserve, right, that's a good indication we're serving, we're doing good for the wrong reasons right uh, we want we 're thinking of God like a vending machine or as a boss right, and that 's the relationship that we are trying to have with him, and that 's not the relationship he wants with us right uh, so so the next question we, we need to look at a, a little more deeply is why does god do why does God do good what are god 's motives what is his goal and purpose in doing good and in blessing us and in in um, and doing kind things for us. What we see, uh, and we started looking at this last week in God's lengthy response to Job, is that, that essentially God uh, is caring for all that he has made. Right? God is a God who is the creator of the world, uh, from the big cosmos of the stars and the seas and the oceans down to birds and to animals in the, in the wilderness. God is a creator, and as creator, he cares for uh, what he has made because he loves it, right? He's, he's like a zookeeper who, who, who takes care of all this zoo of animals and people and stuff that he has created, right? Um, uh, and, and that his motive is not to give people what they deserve, right? Uh, it is not a merit system where he's giving good to the good people and giving bad to the bad people. No, we find that God is caring for everything. Um, and we see this picture specifically in, in chapter 40. We looked last week at all the animals that he took care of, but he, he highlights one unique character in chapter 40, verse 15, and he talks about Behemoth. What in the world is Behemoth? Well, let me read. It says in, in uh, verse 15, Behold, Behemoth which I made as I made you. Because he's talking to Job. He says, look, I made Behemoth the same way I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Now, I don't know if he's saying that Job eats grass like an ox. <laughs> I don't know if he's saying that. But he's saying in general, right, uh, his, Job is a cre- creation, a special part of creation, just as Behemoth. Behold, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? There it is. There's Behemoth, behemoth right there. He's <laughs> roaring on cue. Wow. Um, so, so what is this Behemoth? What is it? Well, we have no idea what kind of creature it is. Uh, the, the closest animal that, that it fits this description would be something like maybe a hippo or an elephant, uh, but nothing matches it exactly. And it's very likely this is more of a legendary creature. You know, think of kind of a Loch Ness Monster. Is the Loch Ness Monster real? Well, who knows, right? Maybe. I, I mean, I've seen pictures, right? Um, and if you don't, you can Google it. I mean, there's pictures out there, right? So he must be real. But maybe not that real. Well, probably Behemoth falls into that category. An animal that people in Job's day believed was real, but nobody had ever actually seen. Or think of like Bigfoot, maybe, I don't know. It's this animal that's out there that, and maybe they had pictures. They, they certainly knew when, when you talked about Behemoth, it brought up images in their mind of this this very powerful creature. Uh, and what we know about it is that it's, it's untamed. Uh, it says, God alone. And control it. it it's. Uh, we talked last week about these, these, these creatures on the edge of disorder, like out in the wilderness, completely untamed, kind of dangerous. Well, it, it was like the chief of, or one of the chief of those kind of creatures, dangerous, untamed, out there, not a creature you wanted to mess with. Certainly not one you wanted to meet in the dark. All right. And uh, but 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 it's described in very unique terms as a creature that even though it's und- it can't be domesticated it can't be controlled. God takes care of it, right? So he says, look, it's content and well fed. Why? Because God provides the food, right? The mountains bring forth the food and the grass. It's cared for, even though it's so powerful and strong and intimidating. It is made strong, right? And he even makes the reference that it's made strong like Job, right? He's, He's powerful, he's strong, he's, he's got... Uh, not, not the kind of thing you want to mess with. Uh, much like Job or like humanity, it ranks among the first among its kind in creation, he says. Right? This is not just an average. This is like top level, uh, at the top of the food chain, just like mankind. Uh, and yet cared for in, in so many ways. Sheltered by the river and the shade of the trees along its banks. And even when the river rages, it doesn't have to fear. There's a a level of trust and security among the behemoth, even though it cannot be captured or trapped. Right. So it's this picture. So really, uh, what God's describing here, he said, Job, look at the behemoth. Intimidating creature, but I take care of it, just like you. Mankind is an intimidating creature, uh, even more untamed and uncontrolled than behemoth. But I take care of it. Why? Because that's what I do, right? I take care of the things I have created. right? Then that, that's the point of this section. Uh, God is good and in His goodness he cares for us because he's good. Because he loves what he's made. and it is heart it is his heart to take care of it and to take care of it well. Right? This goodness is based on his love for all that He has made. Not on the basis of giving one, every, everyone what they deserve. Right? God does not take care of behemoth because it deserves, deserves it, because it's been a good behemoth versus a bad behemoth. Right? No. He just cares for it because it's part of His creation and He loves it. Right? And so it becomes clear that, that God is not interested in a relationship as a vending machine. God is not interested in a relationship. Uh, where it 's just a, a, an exchange of we do the right things and he owes us or he 's obligated or he 's indebted to us because we kept the rules or did the right things, and that therefore we, he has to give us what we deserve, and, and God kind of takes it to the next level uh, in uh, in, verse 40, in chapter 41, where he describes another creature. This creature is a Leviathan, right? Let's look at this creature. Can you, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make pleas to you? Will he speak soft words to you? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? (laughs) Okay, I love that picture. We'll talk about this. By the way, the Leviathan probably comes, also a legendary creature most likely, that that probably comes closest to a fire-breathing dragon. And he actually even talks about this creature breathing out fire, right? So if you believe dragons are real, then yes, it's a real creature. (laughs) If you think that's mostly the, the stuff of legend, then it's legendary. I'll let you decide. But that's kind of what's pictured here. Okay. Do you put a dragon, a fire-breathing dragon, on a leash for your kids to play with? <laughs> Maybe not, right? Maybe not. Um, uh, will will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Can you lay your hands on him? Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. In other words, if man ever hoped to capture this creature, watch out. This is a battle you will only fight once and you will swear to never do it again because that's how terrifying and dangerous Leviathan is. Uh, You cannot cannot bridle it. You cannot put a hook in its nose. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Or you could say no one is so stupid (laughs) that he dares to stir him up, right? Uh, Let sleeping dogs lie. How much more if it's a dragon, right? Let sleeping dragons lie. Don't wake it up. So, 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 God paints this amazing picture of this terrible, ferocious, absolutely uncontrolled beast, and then He says, "Who then is he who can stand before Me?" Right? So, so if man is like Behemoth, God is like Leviathan. Right? Who can stand before me? You don't want to mess with the dragon. How much less do you want to mess with the living God of the universe? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And then he goes on and he describes even at more length this fire-breathing dragon. Right? Uh, what is the point of all this? Well, the key really is in verse 11 where he says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Key words, right? And what God is saying here is simply this. Uh, God is not a God who will be indebted to anyone, who will be controlled by our behavior, by our good works, by our efforts, by our deeds. So he says, what are you thinking, Right? Is there any way that you could put a dragon on a leash and tame it? Well, no. There's no way. So why do you think you can, can, you can control me, you can manipulate me, by doing some nice things? Right? Like, God's like, what are, are, what are you thinking? right? What are you thinking? You're going to do something nice you're going to be a good person and, and I'm going to be on a leash and do whatever you say? Do you have any idea who I am? Job's like, ah, uh, I thought I knew. <laughs> okay, I was wrong. Right? God is a dragon. Now, is he a dragon that's out to kill, maim, and destroy? No. Right? He just got done through saying, look, I'm a God who's caring for my creation. But that because I care for my creation, that doesn't make me a puppy dog. <laughs> right? Right? I'm a, I'm a dragon. I'm uncontrolled. There's nothing any human being can ever do. There's nothing that they can give me to make me do what they want. In other words, God is just slam dunking in the trash as big as, in, in the biggest way possible, this whole idea of merit. Right? That's what he's saying here. Like, There's no way I'm going to reduce myself to a place where I'm going to let anybody control me by earning my favor. That's not who I am. Right? That, is not, that is never the basis for why I do good. Because you somehow deserve it? Right? That's not, that is not who I am. And that is never the relationship I want with people. Ever. Right? That that I'm going to capitulate you. I'm going to give you what you want because you earned my favor. Right? Oh. I feel obligated to do something for you because because you didn't kill your you, you, you didn't kill your neighbor. Good job, okay. I owe you now. Right? That's not how God works. Right? And yet how how we want it to work that way? And that is Job's friends. Job's friends wanted it to work this way. Why? Because they wanted a God on a leash. Right? They wanted a God who was a puppy that they could control. Not a sovereign, mighty, powerful God who is creator over heaven and earth, who uh, who's in charge, who's exercising his own will and plan and purpose according to his wisdom, not caving into the whims of mankind, of people. But that was the, that was the kind of gods that they pictured, right? That was the kind of gods of ancient time. And so they assumed... Uh, that's how God works, and and one of the things this is important. It's not only important in our relationship with God, but I think this this relationship between us and God also becomes the basis for how we relate to each other. And I don't have time to dig into it this morning, but go home and think about it. In merit-based cultures, okay, say so take Thailand, where it's based on merit system on karma. Not only does it affect how they try to control the gods. But it also enters into every relationship they have with each other, right? It's all about earning people's favor. It's all about being not too obligated to people, right? That's why you don't want to be gringai, right? Because I don't want I don't want to give people too much control over my life. If 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 they do a favor, I owe them, right? And so not only is it t- Shape this relationship with God, uh, the horizontal relationship, but it shapes the relationships within society, right? And it's it's super dysfunctional, right? It's super dysfunctional because I can never just do something good for somebody because I want to. It becomes every time it becomes an exchange. I did something good for you. Now you owe me, right? And if you don't pay up, right, then I'm going to hold it over you to control you, right? But God does not work that way. And he says here in this whole thing of the dragon, he says, look, I'm not going to be controlled. I'm like Leviathan. I am uncontrolled, untamed. You will never put a bridle in my mouth. Because if if, if, if you could, I would cease to be God. And I would cease to be the sovereign God who's in control over everything. So God can't be controlled, uh, we can't make him do anything. But, but he's a God who who is good because of his own goodness. And he takes care of us out of his kindness and, and compassion. Right? Not because he owes us something. But of course, this does raise the problem. Then, then why is there suffering? right? We get why there's blessing, but why is there suffering? Well, we talked about this last week, and we don't have time to dig into it again. But just... Uh, Suffering is ultimately a, a side effect of living in a world that's not perfectly ordered, right? We talked about God creating a world with, with disorder still there, right? The final perfect order world doesn't come until eternity. and We live in a world that's a work in progress, and there is disorder. There are lions, right? And lions are dangerous. Lions will eat you, but they don't eat you because you're a bad person, they just eat you because they're hungry, right? Right. It's not personal. You just happen to be um, fresh meat, right? So, so, so we live in this world, but of course, also we live in a world that's under the chaos of sin, a world that's fallen and broken. So much of the suffering in the world is a result of sin. Uh, on the side of progre- progressive creation, that God's. Called us as human beings to extend His order throughout the, the world, and so, thankfully, we live in a very different world than Job. Job, right? Uh, the good news is, if Job lived in today's world, he could go to the doctor, and there would be medicine for his skin skin disease, right? And there's ointments, there's creams for this, and within probably a few days, it would clear up and would be better, right? We we have extended, so in many ways, we have eliminated a lot of the suffering. I praise God for. For Tylenol, right? Imagine living in a day when you got a headache and you just had to live with it for hours or days or weeks. Praise God that you know we don't suffer as much as as Job did, right? We we have uh, through God's grace we we have extended order to overcome much of that. So so what we see is that. Um, uh, this idea of do good, get good is a, is a general principle in the world, right? It is a general principle that in, in general, if we're extending order, if we're doing the right things, if we're overcoming sin, life does go better for us in general. If we uh, walk into chaos, if we invite chaos into our life, if we make bad choices, uh, you know, and we, we, we invite sin and chaos, life generally will go worse, Right? But it's, it's a general principle. It's not an absolute law of nature. So in general, life does work this way. But it's not a guarantee, right? Um, and either way, God's care is a matter of his goodness, not a matter of getting what we deserve. That is reserved for the final day of judgment. All right, so what does all this mean? Well, does God want to be a father or a boss? <laughs> right? Well, it's... Like We could have just probably saved a lot of time and just answered that question at the beginning. We kind of know, right, that God doesn't want to be a boss. He wants to be a father, right? And, and that just is very different about how that relationship works, right? Um, so the, the book ends uh, in chapter 42. It says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job uh, when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave t- Job twice as much as he had before. Uh, now, it's important to understand that at the end of the book, Job gets his fortune back double, but this is not supposed to like erase all of his suffering, right? It doesn't mean like, "Oh, I got a new family, so I don't have to worry about the ones I lost. Yay, right? I got new ones. <laughs> Good deal. No, of course not. Of course, of course, he still misses his his children, right? Um, he still grieves their loss. Uh, so this is not about God saying, okay, it's all better now. I've, I've erased your suffering. No. His suffering was something that would be part of his life forever. Right? The, uh, the experience of that would never go away. But, but what it means is that God's policy of blessing, God's, God's way of working in the world of blessing, of taking care of even showing extravagant abundance, remains the way God wants to work in the world. Satan, at the beginning, was wrong about Job and God. And in the end, God restores Job's blessing and prosperity, not to erase his suffering, but to show that this is how God intends to work in general. Praise God for that. Amen, right? Praise God that God wants to bless you. And we, most of us, actually live uh, with incredible blessing. But of course... Uh, he, he does it as a, as a father, not as a boss. He's not a vending machine. And so bad things will happen. Hard things will come into our life. We will have times when we suffer. Right? And it doesn't mean God's punishing us. It doesn't mean God is giving up on us or doesn't care about us anymore. It just means that's part of living in the world we live in, broken, fallen. Um, so So... So Job comes to this great conclusion after God gives him this incredible speech. How does Job respond? Well, Job says these, these simple to the point words. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job says, look, I, I get it now. You're, Levi, you're Leviathan, not a puppy. You are going to accomplish your purpose. And so the question is, is God's purpose good or evil? Well, Job comes to a place of affirming, no, God's purpose is good. He is a good God. Well, how does he come to that, that understanding? Well, he says, I, I, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I thought I knew who God was. I heard rumors about you. I, I like my friends, had heard what, what I thought you were like. But now my eye sees you. Right? Now, Job has gotten a much more clear and accurate picture of the nature and character of God. Right? In the end, Job's eyes are open and he comes to really know what God is like and who he is. And he sees that he is a God who is all powerful, who is awesome, who is uh, beyond our control. And at the same time, he's a God who's loving, caring, and good. Right? We cannot control him. But we can trust him because he's a God who is good. Uh, And and Job learns that he can trust in God even when he doesn't understand what's going on in his life. Right? He can still trust God. And his final conclusion is he says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Probably not a very good translation because the word repent here brings up images of, of... Job confessing some sin, but that would actually unravel the whole point of the book, right? Because all along he'd said he said he had done nothing wrong. Uh, the word repent here probably is better translated, he, he gave it up. He forgot about it. In other words, he forgot about his dust and ashes. He came to a point where he could now accept his suffering as just part of life and he could deal with it, right? He could trust God in the midst of his suffering, why? Because he came to know who God really is. God really is, right? And that's what God, God wants us to know who He really is—not as some empty vending machine, not as some cosmic boss who owes us something—but we come to know Him as a Father uh, who cares for us. Last point. Last thing we need to talk about the Book of Job here is this. Uh, it's this interesting thing, right? So, and, th- and this is kind of like, this is the best part of the whole story, right? Because all along, Job has been saying, look, I am not guilty. I am not being punished for sin. You guys are the wrong, who- you guys are the ones who are messed up, right? Well, in the end, I love this. Verse seven, the Lord, uh, after he had spoken all these things to Job, turns to Eliphaz the Temanite and says what? My anger burns against you and your two friends. Job's over there going, yes, 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 yes. I knew it. Right? And we're with him. We're going, yes, yes. Right? It's about time these guys get there. These loser friends of Job. Why? For you have not spoken of me what is right. You have misrepresented my character and my nature. You have made me like the gods of, of the ancient Near East not the unique God who is a father and a friend, right? And so you are guilty. Uh, You are not like my servant Job. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. Job's like, oh yeah, <laughs> vindication at last, at last, right? I'm the good guy here. Well, Job is not proud though. We don't see that kind of proud reaction in Job. And said he, he is kind, right? And he acts as a mediator and a priest, right? And he negotiates, he mediates forgiveness for his friends, right? My, my servant Job shall pray for you and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly right? um, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has so Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Nehemite, went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer it's amazing right and the amazing picture here is a guy who who was, was right who, had, who, who did not do wrong But he was suffering as somebody who was being punished. Like for all practical purposes, his friends were convinced Job had to do something wrong because his life looked like punishment. right? But God vindicates him. He says, no, he's guilty of nothing. But let's talk about who deserves punishment. Let's talk about getting what you deserve. You guys deserve Job's life. But here's the deal. You bring a sacrifice and you let Job uh, be a mediator to atone for your sin and to pray for you. And I will not give you what you deserve. Right? I will show you kindness and grace. And I love that the book ends on this this note. Right? Job is the most unlikely mediator. And, And he says, look, I will forgive you through the mediation, through the priesthood of Job, who will intercede for you. Uh, and Job takes on this role as one who is still under affliction and suffering. Right? His blessing has not been restored yet. He's still one suffering. He's still got sores all over his body. He's still on the ash heap scraping his wounds. And he said, let this pathetic, suffering person be your priest who prays for you. Right? This one who looks as if he is being punished, let him pray for you so that you don't receive what you deserve. So the one who is experiencing suffering and affliction makes atonement on behalf of those who deserve the suffering. And God accepts it and extends grace. And his friends do not get what they deserve. Does that remind you of anybody? <laughs> right? Right? Uh, What an amazing picture of Jesus, right? Uh, Who uh, suffered like one being punished, even though he was perfectly guiltless, without sin. Who stood in the place as our high priest and as our mediator. Right? Who prays for us. Who made atonement. For us, not through the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, but through the blood of his own body poured out for us. Who suffered incredible punishment. Who many people think died because of his own bad karma. Right? But he didn't, right? He died because of our sin. And because of his gift of grace. Because he was a substitute in our place. We don't get what we deserve. So, uh, right, Paul says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Not because of anything we have done, but because of what God has done for us. Right? Right? And Jesus is this amazing suffering servant. Isaiah 53 puts it this way, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, What what an amazing way Job pictures uh, the suffering Jesus, who uh, was punished in our place. Let me just close. Uh, I think a great ending to the book of Job is uh, Psalm 103. Let me just close uh, with these words which really speak powerfully for themselves. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The works of righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The Lord works for justice and righteousness for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Nor does he deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. We might say, well, is fear just another exchange? Well, I don't think so. Because fear is ultimately an attitude of awe at the glory of God. He is a Leviathan. And we stand in awe of him. It is not trying to earn his, his goodness. It's just knowing who he is. Right? That's what fear is. Um, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, that we are dust but dust. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.